0: Let me tell you a story about a couple of American kids who make their dreams come true, and you tell me what's not to like about it. A professor in India gets a job offer to go to the University of British Columbia, Canada. Then he gets an offer to teach at Voorhees College, a historically black college founded in the 1800s by a student of Booker T. Washington. He takes the job. He moves his family. He has a daughter. This daughter grows up. She goes to a state college. Gets a degree in accounting. She comes back home and becomes a bookkeeper for her mother's successful clothing shop. Engaged in the family business, she joins the local chamber of commerce. She's named to their board. From there, she becomes treasurer of the National Association of Women Business Owners and president of the state chapter. She serves on the local medical foundation and the sheriff's foundation. By now she's married. She has kids. She hears Hillary Clinton say all the reasons people give you why you shouldn't run for office are the reasons why women should run for office. At 33 years old, she runs for the state legislature. She takes on the longest serving member of the state house of representatives. She wins. She does well in the position and wins twice after that. She reaches higher. She runs for governor and becomes the first woman in the office. One of her state's U.S. senators resigns. She needs to pick a a replacement to fill out the term. And she names someone with a life story just as remarkable as her own. Her choice is a man raised by a single mother, a working-class black woman. He went to college and became an insurance agent... He got involved in local politics. At the age of 30, he was elected to the county council, becoming the first black man of his party to hold that office in a century. At the age of 43, like the governor, he ran for the state house of representatives and won. Just two years later, he ran for a seat in Congress and he became the first black member of his party elected to Congress from his state in 114 years. Now, our first female governor, the child of immigrants, has elevated a groundbreaking black man, the son of a hard-working nursing assistant, to the United States Senate, the highest federal office under the president. Our governor is a success. She's elected to a second term. Now the president takes notice. He asks her to join his administration. She takes the job. By all accounts, she is a force to be reckoned with at the international level. The same year, our senator is elected to a full six-year term. With black senators from both parties, he introduces legislation to make lynching a federal crime. Finally. And now, in the year 2023, both groundbreaking successful politicians are running to be president of the United States. Sounds like a Hollywood script, doesn't it? I mean, if it were, there would be a bittersweet moment backstage before a big debate. They'd smile at each other, talk about coming up so far. Then they'd go out in front of the glare of the lights and the television cameras, American flags waving in the audience, and engage in a feisty debate about the future of the country. Especially for Democrats and progressives, this duo seems like the kind of barrier-busting and change that they've been looking for. A woman for president, a black man for president, Fresh air after the gruesome battle of the baby boomers that was the 2020 presidential campaign. What's not to like? What's not to like is that our protagonists are Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, both of South Carolina. Republicans! Southerners! Losers! Boo! That's the compass of power, people. dedicated to a single proposition, that place is politics. If American politics were about the things we think they are about, then the presidential runs of Nikki Haley and Tim Scott would get a different reception. We used to say that political differences were philosophical, that each of us considers whether government intervention in the economy is good or bad, we consider to what degree states should differ with one another in law, whether the judiciary should interpret the competition, Constitution or read it literally. Based on our philosophy of law, we then vote for candidates who align with us. But that's out. Lately, the pundit class has taken to the idea that politics, and all of culture, are inseparable from race. That the United States was a permanently structured institution, uh, privileging one race at the expense of all others. And that structure leads us to the current political system in which white people vote against not-white people in a contest for raw power. Related to this is the concept of political polarization, that we sort ourselves into like-minded groups of conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, and then we blame the other side for all that is wrong in the world. Those camps line up neatly along race, education, religion, and other demographics, bringing us back to a white versus non-white, sexual minorities versus straights, uh, America by identity paradigm. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott pose interesting challenges to those theories— That they have made it as far as they have in a Republican-dominated state is problematic for theories based in race and gender. Polarization, on the other hand, doesn't seem to explain why neither one is known for scorched-earth politics in a party that elected the most scorchy of all politicians, Donald Trump. If the path to victory was clearly running as hard right as you could, wouldn't they run hard right? Place gives us a better frame both for why Scott and Haley think they have a shot and why their personal politics are what they are. Their home state, South Carolina, is the originator of Southern culture. Completely separate from the Pilgrims and Puritans of New England, South Carolina was founded by would-be English aristocrats. Like the Yankees, the Carolinian plantation owners spread west. The Deep South, as we know today, is an extension of their planter culture founded around Charleston and moving west. One reason I came to believe that place is the same as politics is that a few years ago, I read my way all the way through American history. After I read a few books, I notice one small state keeps coming up. South Carolina. You don't usually hear a lot about South Carolina on national news. I'm up in the Pacific Northwest, and South Carolina is not like a place we talk about very frequently. Like Iowa, every four years, it has a chance in the spotlight during the presidential primary. It's not Texas or New York, California or Florida. It's not a major population center, a major economic center, or even a particularly big state geographically speaking. But in the history books, South Carolina looms large. Again and again, it appears as the antagonist. Andrew Jackson faced down the state over nullification. It's the home of Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and Senator John C. Calhoun, who used his brilliant political mind to argue for states' rights and to perpetuate slavery. The Civil War started in South Carolina when the locals fired on federal troops at Fort Sumter. South Carolinian Strom Thurmond was among the first of the Southern elite to leave the Democratic Party over the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He served another 38 years until he was 100 years old. And now, two of the state's leading politicians are running for president. But you ask, isn't the Palmetto State always on the losing side? South Carolina has a long history of just being shut down. It could not nullify federal laws it didn't like. It could not treat people like property. It could not beat the North in a war. It could not deny voting rights to people based on their skin color. Over and over again, the North has stepped in and put a halt to South Carolina's policies, and by extension, the Deep South's policies. As late as 1974, South Carolina's seats in the General Assembly, the legislature in which Haley and Scott would eventually serve, were signed as if it were the U.S. Congress. Counties took the place of states. Seats were apportioned by county, with each county receiving a certain number of representatives based on population, but never less than one. Every county was assigned one state senator, just like every state, whether it's California or Kentucky, is represented by two federal senators. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the South Carolina system violated the one-person-one-vote principle. That is, that each person should be proportionately represented. You can't just say, well, no matter how many people are in a county, you still get one representative. What if there are five people in that county? South Carolina had to give up that system in favor of the national version of how our democracy should work. So today, why would anyone from that state think they could win a national election? Look to the compass of power. The center of power in any democracy is the place where you find the most votes. In the United States, that geographic point has been drifting south and west for decades, as the population has moved south and west. Part of the great American migration to the south can be credited to the north. By outlawing slavery, going after Jim Crow, ensuring voting rights, and, as South Carolina's Tim Scott helped do, make lynching a federal crime, the North has made the South more socially acceptable to Americans living in the North. It's now more comfortable for Americans to move to the South. You can listen to a previous episode about the wave of black Americans moving to the modern South, where their ancestors had lived for generations. Today, young black professionals can move to Georgia or Tennessee knowing that they will be able to find good jobs, vote, and hold office. So, first point, any politician who can credibly win in the South has a major building block in winning the presidency. Winning that culture over is truly more important now than it has been in 150 years. Point two, the Republican Party is the party of the South. The South and the North always have a major political party under their sway. For a long time, the Republicans were the party of the North. All the black men elected to office in the South after the Civil War were Republicans. Scallywag, by the way, is not pirate talk. It's a term meaning a white person who voted for Republicans in the post-war South. The Southern elites were Democrats for more than a century, all the way back to the time of Andrew Jackson. But the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a big deal. It empowered a totally disempowered political minority in the South. And that was a big deal. After that, the elite of the South were done with the Democrats and started moving over their generation to the Republican Party. That's the big switcheroo in party control. Today, the Southern elite controls and moves within the Republican Party. Their opponents mostly live in the South's growing cities. And and they belong to the opposite party, the Democrats. And uh, this is the same pattern we saw during Reconstruction. Haley and Scott are members of the modern Southern elite. Thanks to some of that racial progress that was forced on the South, their skin color is not a barrier to joining the elite. It's worth noting that South Carolina's current Republican governor, Henry McMaster, recently appointed Brian Gaines Comptroller General. That makes Gaines the first black constitutional office in South Carolina since Reconstruction. Although Haley and Scott have said their experiences as minorities have shaped their own views... Those views are otherwise exactly what you would expect from Southern leaders. Uh, Tim Scott, for example, has made uh, some great speeches about his experience as a conservative businessman being pulled over seven times in a year. He's an elected official, an insurance agent, drives a nice car, gets pulled over seven times in one year. And he points out that he doesn't think that happens to his white peers. Uh, but. He is still a conservative businessman. Uh, you've heard me extol Joe Biden's union-friendly policies before. I think that they are good for the middle class. I'm a big supporter. Nikki Haley, not so much. As governor of South Carolina, she said of unions, quote, they're trying to sneak in any way they can. My job is to make sure I keep kicking them out. As a senator, Tim Scott has worked on policing issues, and conclu- including proposing the Justice Act but he also voted against forming an independent commission to investigate the January 6th storming of the Capitol. All of which is to say, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley's politics may not be as strident as Donald Trump or even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' politics, but they are absolutely conservatives. The fact that they embody the North's ancient enemy, the planter elite of the South, and they are not white is really a double insult to the sensibilities of the North which is why their biographies are no shield against partisan attacks. And believe me, just look it up on the internet, they have been hit hard regardless of their uh, backgrounds or biographies. Still, Nikki Haley and Scott have at least some chance of winning in a primary because they are in a political party that dominates the South. Now, for a reality check, Neither Haley nor Scott are doing well in national polling for the presidential primary. Trump is number one among Republicans right now, and DeSantis is a distant number two. That makes the South Carolinians extra distant, also also rans right now. There are innumerable reasons for this lineup right now, and it can and probably will change as the race takes shape, but we on the compass of power are going to stick with place. Let's talk about the geography of the Republican primary. First of all, South Carolina may be the mother of deep Southern culture, but her children have grown much bigger than she is. The Palmetto State's population is just over 5 million, while next door, Georgia's population is 10.7 million. Texas and Florida are the second and third most populous states in the Union. So right off the bat, a governor of Florida like Ron DeSantis has a power base several times the size of a South Carolina governor like Nikki Haley. More importantly, there is more than one culture in the South. While the Carolinas' planter culture spread all the way to East Texas, it stopped there. The number one most populous cultural group in the United States are the Appalachians. They inhabit the whole mountain chain that they got their name and land running all the way west to northern Texas. Who is the politician with a lock on that culture? Donald Trump. He may be from New York City, but he's adapted his bellicose, free-speaking New York style to appeal to Appalachians who prize courage and aggression in all things, especially politics. According to the Nationhood Lab, the population of that cultural zone, Greater Appalachia, is 62 million, and Trump won the vote there by 21 points in 2020. The Deep South population, meanwhile, is 45 million, and Trump won it in 2020 by 7 points. So, Coming from South Carolina, as Nikki Haley and Tim Scott do, is a good start for a Republican presidential candidate. But it is only a start. You have to expand your base from there. And that raises the question. Can the heirs to the planter class build cross-cultural bridges? Can politicians from the state that kicked off the Civil War win a national popularity contest in the 21st century? Let's look very specifically at three cultural regions that form the Southern Coalition, which is the Republican coalition. As we've already mentioned, Donald Trump goes hard after Great Appalachia. And he does that by going hard after perceived enemies. It's a culture that values standing up to outsiders. I think a bad example of attempting to court this cultural group would be a photo Nikki Haley circulated showing her with an AR-15 style rifle. Clearly the goal here was to show that she is friendly to gun rights, which are very popular throughout the South. Unfortunately for her, she's not actually someone who enjoys hunting or shooting at targets. She's not a veteran. I became aware of this when a Democrat who is a veteran took the opportunity to point out the many ways in which she was handling the gun improperly in that photo. I'm not a gun expert, but one thing I do know is that you shouldn't have your finger on the trigger until it's time to pull the trigger. She had her finger on the trigger while she was just sighting down the barrel. An unforced error. I also haven't seen Tim Scott do a lot of outreach to the Appalachians. He certainly must be a supporter of gun rights, and he has attempted to write police reform legislation that would be palatable to law enforcement. His brother is a career military man. But by personality, Tim Scott seems to be a fairly jovial person, a businessman who likes to make friends. He does not approach topics with a lot of aggression. The one area in which I have seen the South Carolinians offer a bone to the Appalachians was Nikki Haley's launch. She started out by pointing to Republican presidential campaigns' records of losing elections. They have lost the popular election more often than not for a generation. And she noted she's never lost an election. Telling folks that she's going to win outright and win big is, if I may repeat myself, a real winner with this crowd. Second, we have the Deep South, which we already mentioned. Uh, But both of these candidates spring from the Deep South, and they can both speak to the Deep South. My impression at this point is that the so-called anti-woke campaigning is most popular in the Deep South. Standing up to New England ideology and declaring it un-American has always been popular in the Deep South. But that's a crowded lane, because Ron DeSantis has been running against wokeism and on that platform of owning the libs and scoring points. So let's talk about the dry West. Sometimes called the Far West. It's that big section of the country settled just before and after the Civil War. It's special because you need irrigation and huge amounts of capital to extract crops or resources there. It's dry. And we're talking places like Wyoming, Colorado. It's always been treated as a colony by the East Coast, and the people there resent that. This area is growing rapidly in population, but it's not clear to me yet that Haley or Scott offer this region much in particular. You could argue that their generally more moderate stance on social issues appeals to the West. The West is less concerned with forcing its own brand of living on folks than it is on economic development and freedom from regulation. In that way, Nikki Haley's call for humanizing our approach to abortion might be a winner, for example. Now, leaving, those are the big three in the Southern Coalition, Appalachia, the Deep South, the Far West, But uh, what about the Midlands? As a cultural region, this started with the Quakers of Pennsylvania, and just like others, they moved west. Folks in this territory have always been what today we would call swing voters. For example, it's the Quakers who started the anti-slavery movement. But when the Yankees took up the banner and headed for Civil War, people in the Midlands were split on the issue of shedding blood to end a moral wrong. The region was torn on the justification for the war, sometimes congregation by congregation. You've heard me say in other episodes that Joe Biden's secret power is that he's from Delaware. Although it's a small state, Delaware includes areas of the Midlands and the Tidewater area of the South. I think that's given Biden the ability to speak to both audiences. He's shown he can win with the underclass in the South, especially black voters. That's how he won the primary in South Carolina and the general election in Georgia. But he's also familiar enough with northern expectations to compete in places like Wisconsin. Ken Scott or Haley talk with the Midlands? Funny enough, that's one of the first questions that will be answered because Iowa is the only state dominated by Midlands culture and it's first up in the primary season. Maybe Tim Scott's sunny optimism and we'll take it as a come attitude will help him with Midlands voters. He said at a recent event, quote, if we are going to achieve another American century, it will require those of us who agree and those of us who disagree to have the civil public forum to debate the serious issues of our time. Will that sell in the heartland? I don't want to stretch too far out into the future. We've got plenty of time before we even get to the first primary election. We'll have lots of opportunities to analyze all the candidates. But let me end with this. The key to winning in the Republican primary is winning. More so than for Democrats in the North. Joe Biden didn't have to come out swinging and winning day one. But because the Appalachians are such a huge part of the Republican coalition, and they value winning so much it will be essential for anyone who is not Donald Trump to beat Donald Trump. That may seem obvious, but I don't mean it in a gaining enough support to a nomination sense. I mean that in the sense of in order to become the king, you will need to kill the king. It's possible that our mainstream South Carolinian contestants will politically wound Trump in a place like Iowa because in that environment they can beat him simply by showing more nuances and moderation to a crowd that puts less emphasis culturally on all-out political warfare. We'll see. It's going to be fun. That's it for today. Hey, uh, please leave me a great review somewhere or tell your family, tell your friends, spread the word. It's the compass of power, a different way of looking at politics, and one that I think serves us well as we head into another presidential election cycle. Peace.